This is a Federal News Network podcast. There's a new unwritten rule at the Homeland Security Department. Don't use the word pilot or demonstration program in public or in official documents. This is because Congress inserted new language that requires DHS to report on nearly all pilot programs before they kick off. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about this provision that seems to have surprised DHS. Jason joins me now with the latest. Jason, what kind of pilot projects are we talking about here and why suddenly does Congress want to be notified ahead of time when DHS has one? The idea behind the provision that was slipped really into the omnibus bill for 2022, and slipped maybe, Tom, isn't the best word. I'll I'll say slipped in because that's what Congress tends to do. I mean, this is something that has been around for quite a while, meaning that in 2021, Congress put it in as a kind of statement of Congress. We, We believe DHS should do more about this. But in 2022, they made it statutory. And what they basically said in there in this provision is it's for any demonstration program or pilot program that uses more than five full full-time equivalents, so people who work there full-time, and costs in excess of $1 million. So more than a million dollars, more than five people working on it. And that's a very low bar. And, and in fact, I talked to some folks, some former DHS uh, executives, they're like, it's also a little bit arbitrary considering how big DHS is, and their budget's something like $187 billion. So a, a million-dollar pilot program is is fairly small. Now, Tom, the reason why Congress wants this is, I think, twofold. Number one, they believe there's a lot of pilot programs out there that don't have a lot of rigor and discipline that they want. And two, they want to know that DHS is putting forward that rigor and discipline. So by requiring reports 30 days before they begin the project, it's not that Congress will read the report, but you have to submit it to Congress, and then if Congress obviously doesn't do anything, then you have the go-ahead. If they do something, they may talk about it. They may want a meeting. They may just send you an email that says you're good to go. But they want to see that the DHS is taking the time and thinking about why these are pilot programs, why they matter, what's the long-term goal for these, and, of course, what are you doing with all this money? So, therefore, DHS people are calling what otherwise would have been called pilot programs something else? just to avoid this reporting requirement? Well, my sources tell me that, and and this is uh, uh, several different people, that they're being told internally, let's just not use the word pilot or demonstration program. We can still do these, but if we don't use the word, then Congress doesn't require a report back to them ahead of time. So I think that's kind of the, the what's happening here is they're playing a little bit of semantics that, well, we're just going to do this exercise. We're going to do this effort that includes... You know, it's a year long or five years long or three years long, and it's a few million dollars, and we'll see how it goes. But they're just not using the word pilot. Now, Tom, I did reach out to DHS several times over the last month or so, seeking comments, seeking input, and, and unfortunately, they just didn't get back to me. So, uh, you know, that's why I, uh, we're saying it seems like there's this unwritten rule. Well, there's pilots and there's pilots. I mean, they want to test a software application internally. That's one thing. If they want to see what happens if in the airports they bombard people with phosgene rays to look for things, that's something else entirely. But it doesn't seem like there's a lot of discernment in here except simply that it's five people and a million dollars. You're absolutely right. And I think part of the reason why is because there are – what many believe a lot of pilots. I talked to Chris Kaminsky, who's the former uh, acting undersecretary for management at DHS, and he said he estimated there could be as many as 40 different pilot programs across the, the entire agency. And he says that that's actually a lot of work being pushed down onto the undersecretary of management. I spoke with Rafael Boris, who was also a former undersecretary of management for DHS and now the president and CEO of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. And he says that while 
this low arbitrary number will cover a lot of programs, DHS actually should have the information available and it should be something that's being collected. He says what the bigger question is and what what he'd be worried about is what's Congress going to do with all this information? They're not going to necessarily look at all 100 reports or even 40 reports, but they will look at one or two and will that create some new challenges for DHS? And of course, Tom, there's already a big burden on DHS already. They already have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of other reporting requirements that have built up over the last 15, 20 years. And Boris says, well, what, what's the impact going to be downstream on on not just the entire components, but on the Undersecretary for Management's office, too, who's already inundated by requests and, and, and requirements? Yeah, this type of thing comes up at the Defense Department from time to time. The number of reports, even long after programs are over, the report never goes away statutorily. And so I guess I wanted to ask what DHS is saying about this new requirement. Sounds like unofficially they're telling you, but there's no official word yet. Correct. And, and I think part of the reason is because at least what I'm told and what I've been told from different sources is they were still trying to figure out what this will look like, how to address it. I don't think it's as straightforward as they hoped it would be as, okay, we'll just write a report. Uh, and I think that there's some maybe even internal guidance being discussed or shared or, or about, okay, here's how we're going to move this going forward. I think that's maybe part of the reason why, you know, again, I gave them a month to respond and, and I got nothing back. All right. So then the question is, what will this requirement what impact will it have and what happens next? The sources I've talked to say the, the lawmakers definitely want DHS to think about this. They want to improve oversight, governance, accountability, general management of these pilot programs. They're not trying to stifle innovation. Congress is not trying to say we don't want DHS to transform, but they do want DHS to make sure they have that discipline and rigor as you're spending millions and millions of dollars. And I think that is a good sign because when I first started to talk to folks about this the, this provision, there was some concern from people like Rafael Boris or Chris Kaminsky that this was punitive in some way, that, that Congress was reacting to something that happened. And my sources tell me actually Congress is not reacting to something bad that happened or good that happened, but just the fact is that there's a lot of these pilots and, and do you have the rigor behind it? And so I think that's a good sign. Now, Tom, you know and I have been, you know, we've been around long enough to know that just because you're asked to report on something doesn't mean things change. It doesn't mean that rigor automatically gets applied. We've seen that with uh, cybersecurity. How many years now has the Federal Cybersecurity Management Act been out there, FISMA, and how agencies are still struggling with cybersecurity just because they put a report in each year? So I think what's really key to watch is, number one, what does Congress do with these reports, as Raphael Boris brought up? But two, what does DHS do? Does this, do they have this information? Do they realize we don't have the rigor and therefore put some pieces and parts in place to create more rigorous reporting requirements and then doing something about it? So I, I think there's there's... This is a start, but what the finish will look like, it's so hard to tell. And there's a practical side of this, too. If you are a program manager or a business owner and you want a pilot project or an experimental project on something, you've got to write it up for somebody. So probably the work is basically done and now just pretty up and send it over to the Hill. And I think some of it is – I mean, I think that's very true, Tom, that – a lot of this information, and this is what Raphael Boris said, already exists. If, if you if you don't have this information, then why were you doing a pilot in the first place? You know, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's only a million dollars. It's only five people. It's very small. But at the same time, Tom, it's still a million dollars. <laughs> so I think you know what I think folks think is that DHS should have been doing this from the beginning, and 
you take that money, you, you, you take that information, can you put it in a way that the Hill can understand it and react positively to it? Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Nice piece of insight. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his notebook now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. 
but I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia Don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. What makes Wayne State the college of choice? With over 130 programs of study, it's the smart choice. With more opportunities to help define your future, it's the bold choice. With high-quality, hands-on learning that will transform you into a career-ready, in-demand graduate. And as the region's lowest-cost bachelor's degree, it's the affordable choice, including scholarship opportunities available to everyone. See why more students make Wayne State College their first choice. Get started at explorewaynestatecollege.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, 
think twice before sending money through an app or online.